Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B growth podcast. I'm Alex Hipwell. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out what makes them successful and what was behind their failures. Today, Shaheen Hode from X-Growth is talking to John Panker, Managing Director for Japan and Asia-Pacific at TechTarget, and Gregory Wood, Head of Marketing, Science, Technology, Data and Analytics for Asia-Pacific at SAS. They're talking about how marketers should aim to reach the entire buying committee at their target accounts. And why just aiming to get the attention of the C-level isn't enough anymore. On that note, let's dive right in. John and Greg, thanks for joining me. Greg, where are we having you on the pod from today? Where are we having me? I'm from Sydney, Australia. That's where we're having me. Sydney, Australia. In my backyard in the sun. It's a beautiful today. Oh, I love it. Although we're, we're having a pretty good weather here in Melbourne. So uh, we are in competition state with Sydney, Sydney weather. Well, um, what, about, what about yourself, John? So I am uh, speaking to you from the Kakadu, not the actual national park. We have named one of our conference rooms uh, Kakadu. So I'm in the office in Surrey Hills and I'm talking to you from Kakadu, our conference room. I love it. Let's talk about this this whole component of focusing on the whole buying committee, right? Why is why is talking about the the buying center, the buying committee in B2B an important topic? John, let's let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think if you take a look, Shaheen, at research into what buying centers look like, you will very quickly realize that we are not talking about a single buyer scenario in almost any instance of technology buying, whether you believe serious decisions and their phrase that demand units exist, or you look at buying committees, as they're called in some cases, we're really talking about a collection of individuals that come together to inform a purchasing decision within their organization. Our own research at Tech Target, recently conducted, found in Asia Pacific, the average size of a buying committee is about 5.2 people. I think LinkedIn puts it somewhere just over six people. The Content Marketing Institute says that within large organizations, there's uh, typically at least four people involved in making a purchasing decision. But we've got to get away from this sense that we're marketing to one person and start looking at accounts and the individuals that make up the various buying committees for technology purchases. And so I think Greg and I are both in agreement that marketers need to think about multiple constituencies when they're going to market and not this single buyer scenario. Yeah, the, having the complex sale environment, having to deal with multiple people, is is such a such an important component. Greg, how, how do you tackle this at SaaS? I mean, you know, there are a lot of companies or a lot of marketers or or even sales individuals who, you know, they're all about that C level, right? That uh, main decision maker, that director. How, how do you approach it at at SaaS? And look, I, I don't disagree that you're an important player, right? So I'm. Um, I'm pretty simplistic kind of character. I think about how I buy something as my baseline to go to. I'm not the CEO of my home company. It might be another CEO of my home company. But if you go buy a car or a large purchase, you're always asking an opinion of you, doing some research, having someone else look at it with you. You might sign the check. Someone else might look at the features and functions. I might ask my parent or a brother or a relative or a wife. And that's, I think, essentially how you buy something. And the larger the purchase decision, the more inputs you tend to take in that decision, unless you're already very familiar with the product, the organization, and your 
have on a panel or some such thing where you know that that's your buying process and everyone, the, the kind of decision is partially made by a committee already, that's easy. But at SAS, we, we do really carefully consider who's in the buying group or the buying centre or the demand unit. We use all of those terminologies. And I look at that, I think our digital marketing, um, it's kind of we've split our marketing into three kind of parts if you want to break it down. There's kind of this hygiene marketing piece. It's automation, journey management. It's purely digital, and it's getting a message across multiple people, across multiple deals at the same time. So that hum of a message is communicating with at a hygiene kind of level. We do a lot of sort of hub, hub activities, and they might happen in a geography. They might happen at an ABM level, targeting a specific account. And we do a lot of uh, work around hub activities that, that attack a specific deal. So if we know there's a deal in a fraud space or in any money laundering area, uh, or just a data management deal going on, we do know how to target individuals that have buying behaviours or consume content um, that match that particular deal cycle. So we do a lot of custom kind of hub marketing around that. And we have a lot of hero activity. So brand is pretty important in this, this game as well. Having the right people in organisations, even if you don't know them, aware of your brand, your brand message, your image, uh, what you're all about. So we make sure we have a, a, this kind of great mix of this brand, this demand-based marketing and this kind of engagement marketing happening at every level in the organisation. So even if we don't catch someone on a deal, and often you can't catch them on a deal, it's up to sales to often put that person in a CRM system as a player in a deal. That doesn't always happen. So you don't know always the players' names. So as a marketer, we spend a lot of time doing really careful segmentation of lookalikes, what do people behave like in deals, how do we target those individuals and personas with the right value proposition at the right time? And timing is really important in buying centres as well. Not everybody needs to know everything, one, all the same things, or at the same level or at the same time. Um, so we spend a lot of time in our marketing just making sure we get across those levels of hygiene hub and hero, getting across all the buying types, uh, and presenting brand demand and engagement material at the right time in a sales cycle to everyone we feel is relevant. Uh, and we do that digitally most of the time with some mix of face-to-face. -face. Obviously, this year, it's almost all digital, uh, but some clever digital, some clever virtual with uh, some fun elements built in to just build that attraction to the audience. So we, we're pretty holistic about our approach to buying centres um, at SAS, and we use a lot of analytics to drive that in the background. I want to definitely come back to that fun thing that you talked about. I want to dig deeper into that. But uh, but let's, you know, one of, the, well, one of the arguments that you most definitely have heard is yeah okay cool buying center you know demand unit whatever you want to call it but the decision maker is this person so i'm just going to go go after that person what is the problem with that what is the problem with that approach it's not factual i guess that's my problem with that approach is that um it's a very historic kind of thing get get to the buying get to the power right this whole if you've done sales training for lots of sales training courses in my times let's get to power but none of them have ever said let's ignore everybody else but I, I think there's a real attachment to ego. I'm talking to the CEO. I'm talking to the chief risk officer. I'm talking to the CMO. And we've got this in control. So my ego is taking over a deal. What we want to have is facts take over a deal. And let's uh, market and sell to everybody who is part of that deal at time or part of that opportunity. And I just think it's closed-minded, basically, to think there's only one person who's important. So kill the ego is what I say. I love that you bring up ego. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think you're, you're I, I never thought about it from, from an ego perspective. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, there's a fair bit of ego boost over there talking about, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to the big guy. Don't worry about that, right? I got it covered. You don't, you don't need to mess around with this. I think so. And, and that's maybe that's okay for a rep or a, or a seller, right? But as marketers and as other people in a sales cycle, so there are pre-sales people in a cycle. There's, there's engineers who are involved. They're not talking to the C-level guy. So clearly there is a buying team of some description. There are support people, there are decision makers, there's a committee. Uh, other people are team in, in services, uh, in consulting services, in maybe the cloud architecture team, architects, engineers. They're all talking to people in that deal. So it is obvious that it's not just a C-level person involved there. And so, so we need to wipe out that leveling thing, I think. And you know, Shaheen, if I can chime in here, I think it's really important to understand the various roles that these individual constituents play in the purchasing cycle. So if we think about the most senior decision maker, likely the CIO or the CTO, this is someone who is very involved early on in understanding business requirements and setting requirements for a project. This is someone who is involved in budgeting but then this is also a leader who takes a step back and delegates a lot of that pre-purchase research to a broader team, people who are gathering functional requirements, who are vetting solutions, who are doing a lot of that digital research that Greg referenced to inform a really smart purchase for the organization. And then finally, the most senior decision maker is someone who comes back in toward the end of the project and plays a part in ultimately selecting someone from the shortlist. So we can't discount the value of much of this buying research that's actually being conducted by people other than the most senior decision maker. And I, I would also say we also shouldn't discount the veto power that the people who are going to be working with technology have in terms of determining which solution is right for them and for their teams. So even though I may not sign the check, I may have the ability to put the kibosh on a purchase that, quite frankly, I don't think is going to meet the needs of my team. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think John raised an excellent point there because that is um, it's this. There's a lot of mental models that already exist. So we talk a lot about you know marketing and analytics and driving people to have good choices and get good information. They're reading the right content, but there's also fixed mental models that people have. I don't like that vendor. I don't like that product. I like this product. And, I, and because I've used it before, it's got to be the best one. So there's a lot of decision-making that happens outside of what you think is providing good information at the right time to the right people. And you've got to get over that in the decision-making kind of process and, and sort of supersede those mental models in a way that's really easy for people to, to make a jump from, I like blue companies and I'll only buy from a blue company. Uh, and that's a that's a real challenge, I think, about getting in the head of just one decision maker, because that those biases exist in individuals' heads. If you get into more people's minds in the process and get across more individuals with a great message, you can actually start to break down some of those mental models and have them challenge internally uh, what the status quo might be and start to make a decision that's a little bit more in line with what the company's trying to achieve rather than what somebody's preference has been previously. Do you ever find yourself stuck with a B2B problem? Need a second opinion on your next campaign? Or looking for some feedback on that piece of MarTech you're thinking to purchase? Well, that's why we created the Growth Colony Slack channel. This Slack channel is like a small dinner party. 
where you get to meet and mingle with B2B professionals, hear what others are doing, and keep up to date with the latest B2B trends and news. You'll also get access to a range of exclusive content from our podcasts, webinars, and events. The best thing about it, it's all free. If this sounds interesting, head over to growthcolony.org forward slash slack and sign up. That's growthcolony.org forward slash slack. We spoke about why it's important, right? And why why people should focus on it. I want to dig into the how a little bit because... You know, even when sometimes we go or marketers or sales team or the growth team, you know, whatever you want to call them, sit down, they build an ideal customer profile and they say, you know what, these are the main decision makers that are in there. That's not always uh, the same thing in reality, right? You might identify four key decision makers. You might say, you know, I, the solution architect, the CIO, the solution architect, and, you know, this end user here and another one from IT team. That's not always the case. And you even you, you might even go and build those personas out and even find those people at the companies that you're targeting. But still, organizations operate differently. You know, org charts get structured differently. Somebody might have the responsibility that you might not have. You might not have that visibility into, into that, that company. So how should marketers start thinking about focusing on the buying center, right? What 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 should the approach be, and where where should they start? Uh, John, you want to go with that? Yeah. So Shaheen, I think I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to start with personas and think about who logically is likely to contribute to a purchasing decision in your space, and then to think about content to meet the needs of each one of those individual personas. And I think Greg has stated this really well content in a variety of different forms to, con- to be consumed by individuals who have their own preferences for how they like to learn. And once you've got that foundation, it's a great place to start, syndicate that content and promote it. But we live in a really interesting world where even if we have a preconceived notion of who these personas are likely to be and what organizations are likely to call them, behavior has the ability to trump what we may have baked into our marketing plan is our ideal customer or our ideal persona. And so we should not discount the fact that people have the right to consume content based on their own interests and their organization's purchasing priorities. And ultimately, we may uncover through a content syndication effort, if done right, that there are people outside the realm of who we ordinarily considered to be buyers for our solution who actually are buyers for our solution. So not discounting people who fall outside of our notion of the right buyer and viewing them as an acceptable lead to be marketing to is a really important notion that all of us need to embrace right now. Starting with personas is great, but let's not exclude other people because our behavior doesn't lie. If we're consuming content in a particular area, pre-purchase content in a particular area, there's a likelihood that we are part of that purchasing decision and we should embrace and market to that individual. Greg, what are your thoughts on that? I have to agree with John quite 100% that we, we do, you start with a persona, it's a logical place to start. Um, we end with the behavior. So we're, we're 
really driving hard at looking at people's intent. So what are they looking at and why, why might they be looking at that? What are they consuming? That kind of dictates that they're part of something and that's behavioural. And we find in a lot of cases that people across departments, across teams are consuming like content on a like topic at one time. And as um, kind of a, a seller and a marketer together, you might not realise that one deal going down is happening across five departments. And there are decision makers from different places and influencers from different parts of the business that you just thought, well, this is an IT decision, we'll talk to IT. Well, this is just a decision in, in the risk team or the marketing team. It actually can span things. And as John says, there are people who like to get involved from lots of places in the business. Um, so we're very strong on looking at behaviour. We do a lot of work with people like Tech Target in terms of syndication to try and understand behaviours. We do a lot of work gaining intent data at an account level and at a contact level to try and understand what people really are looking at and why and trying to analyse and bring them together to see are they part of one intention. Because there may be people who have been in contact with multiple intentions and multiple on multiple buying groups at one time. So not all companies are buying only one thing at a time, right? So um, we're trying to, to, to differentiate out who's kind of this uber buyer, who's got an influence across the business, then who's got an influence in a, a current opportunity and who's likely to target for a specific topic or a more broad-based set of SaaS messaging. And we bring that down to just driving insights. And to do that, we have to collect a lot of data uh, so we've got a lot of data from, from John's team. We've got a lot of data internally, multiple other providers, to try and get that really, really holistic view on what, what the customer is looking at and try to make sure the message really relates to the customer. So you've got to think much more, I think, strategically, as you, you mentioned. You can't just focus on what you know. <laughs> Agree 100% with Greg. And I'll give you some numbers, Shaheen, that just kind of back up the points that Greg just made. We, we did a, a buyer survey about six months ago. 40% agree that decision-making is now more distributed across teams than it was a year ago. 25% say generalists, people with general titles are more important than ever in driving purchasing decisions. Two-thirds say there's more involvement beyond the traditional titles they'd assume um, for their particular solution area. And 55% agree that uh, line of business professionals are more involved in making technical purchases. So it is very difficult to rely exclusively on our preconceived notion of these personas. Intent should drive our marketing strategies, just like Greg said. So, uh, you know, I've been, I've been part of campaigns where there's a, there's a persona built and then they go to the market, right? And then somebody who is not part of that persona starts consuming that content. And then the marketing manager is like, nah. Now nah, we don't, don't worry about that. Right. And then they come back and say, why did our marketing campaign didn't work? Why, what, what were we failing? And I think what they don't realize is that organizations are a group of humans and humans don't operate the, you know, like a machine exactly how you want it to operate. And, uh, and, and this is, this is what we, what we get out of it. I think it, it's, it's fascinating when you're talking about intent and you're talking about, you know, collecting that data you know, what are some of, um, uh, Greg, what are some of the data points that you found to be very pivotal? Like you would say, you know what, if we don't have this kind of data, we're not going to go, go ahead. We're not going to go forward. What are some of those, you know, top, top two, three uh, data points or, or type of data that you, uh, you heavily consume about your customers? We love everything data. We're a data company. We love 
consuming data, we have saving data, we love analyzing data. At the end of the day, I'm kind of seeing some of the real key drivers for us. It's not just the job title type things anymore. It is the it's it's the family of content they're looking at. So I'm kind of uh, you roll it up a little bit from you, we can't get too tied down. Is it are they looking at like disk storage if it's a that kind of purchase at that level? We have to roll that up a little bit to a an interest. So we've got an algorithm that builds an interest score. So we take lots of intent data and we model that against our value propositions and we build an interest score. And it's a it's a probability that a, a contact or an individual consumer is interested in that particular value proposition. To do that, we need a bunch of data. But you know, the most important thing to me is what are they interested in? What's driving their their thought process? What what kind of grabs their eye? So it's that high-level topical area. And for us, it's like, are they interested in analytics, machine learning, um, artificial intelligence? Are they interested in data quality, data management, whatever else? Are they interested in fraud, AML, security intelligence? If we can glean at that level their interest, then add to that their organizational type, because that really helps us if we understand what industry or sub-industry somebody is in. It's a real driver for how we target it, marketing to that person. Clearly, if you have someone interested in analytics, AI, and ML, but they work in retail, probably a different message than if they work in a financial services or capital markets kind of industry or sub-industry. So those that, that intersection is super important to us. Intent to drive interest across industry is really important. Geography is important. There's clearly all organizations can't. Unless you're selling a pure online product, you can't sell every product in every market because you can't resource that. So understanding where you're from, and then if we can overlay market research information from the likes of an IDC, Gartner, Forrester, which we do a lot of in terms of market size, growth, and intention, we get a pretty decent picture of what someone's interest looks like. The thing I would not ignore is what their behavior is on a given day. So we can do all this work in the background. It's all really important. We get these great fields of interest. We build this great model. But somebody might do something completely outside of what you are expecting them to do. And you can't count them as an outlier. They're a real individual with a real behavior. So that real-time capture of change behavior, then allowing your marketing processes to capture that and like regenerate a profile on the fly and remarket that person with the appropriate content now. It's about not being fixed in that we're in a channel now. This was your interest. You're staying interested in that for I don't know how long. And we've got to allow Just you to consume this. That. I'm telling you, you have to consume this ebook. Just read That's it. That's right. And I think. I think if marketers aren't thinking strategically about targeting, they are going, I've got my eight pieces of content now. I know you talked about disk storage. You are down that path for five weeks. That is certainly not a strategic mindset that we're, we're not trying to do that. But we see it happen in marketing, right? You get the same email over and over and over again until you either ditch it completely, unsubscribe or whatever. So our goal is to be so mindful about what we send to customers that if they are changing their intention or changing their their signals to us that we can change our messaging to them to make sure we're, we're really getting in tune with what they're thinking about at that moment of time. Yeah. John, what you said over there about decision makers are becoming more, are having more generic titles. I can't remember exactly what, what you mentioned, but you know, it was something in the lines of their, their titles are becoming more generic and harder to identify. I, I remember we were working with one of our clients and you know, we're like, so let's just go through your CRM and see who bought, who reached out to you first in, in these past deals that you had. And it was just like, general manager, general manager, general manager. And we're like, 
how are, you know, in a company that has, uh, you know, 5,000 employees, we can't go and just target general managers. Like there's just so many of them. And that's, that is so hard. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating that you said that because, you know, intent then starts to play a very huge role in there and, and, and behavior. What are your thoughts on, on, on that and, and the, the rise of the generic t- uh, the title of decision makers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a few things driving this. First of all, you know, look at your own organization and consider some of the wacky titles that people have, right? I mean, there's there, there's often no rhyme or reason to why we call someone something. And sometimes their job evolves to have authority, responsibility for a variety of things that their title would never lead you to believe they're in charge of. And then you know, secondly, within technology, there are now so many cross-functional, cross-discipline areas that require people from different groups to participate in a purchasing decision that that muddies the waters. And then I'll throw a third spanner in the works, which is if you take a look at where most organizations post-pandemic were making cuts, specific cuts within technology teams, it's staff. And some of that is done through attrition, right? People leave and they don't get replaced. And as a result, you have folks who are now responsible for things that they were never responsible before because there are fewer people. And as a result, you cannot allow someone's title to guide whether or not they are appropriate for your content, your marketing message, or the buyer for your solution. And I'll say one other thing because, I mean, I think Greg... Greg understands data and embraces data and also quantifies the value of what marketing is bringing to an organization better than anybody I know, hands down. And I think he would agree that we should all acknowledge that there are certainly no shortage of providers out there promising us data. The thing we have to understand these days is that not all data is created equal. And being data-driven doesn't mean embracing every data source. It means making smart choices about where that data is coming from and prioritizing what you're investing in and what you're using to guide your strategies. Um, I would argue that the closer you get to directly observing the behavior, the more reliable the data is. Who's on your own website? Hey, you've controlled that content, right? If you've built that content and you know what story that content is telling, you can understand the mindset of the person who's consumed that content. You know, Greg would probably prioritize interactions on SAS's own website above pretty much anything else. And I would say as a, as a publisher and a data provider, the fact that we have a direct relationship with an audience and that we're directly observing what that audience is doing with pre-purchase content tagged against very granular solution areas gives us an incredibly high degree of reliability behind all the data that we're providing. The further you get from the source, my argument is the less reliable that data is. And so I think we shouldn't confuse the fact that just because data exists, it should all be treated equally or all be utilized for that matter. Greg, is there anything you want to add to that? I, I, I do fully agree with John. That so our, our aim almost all the time and not to be like selfish about people is to have people consumed in the SaaS ecosystem. We, we like 
people to find our content so interesting and engaging that they want to stay in our ecosystem. So if we're acquiring contacts um, for marketing through another channel, we might purchase some intent data, we might um, do some advertising or whatever it might be. We want to attract them into our ecosystem because we can trust the data in our ecosystem. We know what we've sent them. We know that they haven't seen necessarily, well, they're staying away from competitive messages because they're in our ecosystem. <laughs> so they're seeing our messages and we want that to happen and we want to, to rely on that. But we're not so foolish to not know that people look at other people's ecosystems as well. So having intent data from other providers like a tech target also helps us um, if you align that with some of that syndication of content and understand what other vendors they're looking at through somebody else's platform, that can be a real eye-opener for a corporation like ours as well to really understand what the competitive landscape looks like and what people are feeling and seeing and thinking. When they're thinking of your solution, who else are they thinking of at the same time? And that helps us in our targeting really significantly. So I, I don't want to be pig-headed and say, yes, everything in the SaaS ecosystem is the only way because people live in multiple worlds. So I think it's just really important that we have a great balance in the way we do things. Our own ecosystem, third-party ecosystems. I love first-party data. The closer you are to someone's behavior, I honestly believe the more you know the truth of it. Uh, that is the same in all scientific experiments. You want to observe behavior so you can predict it. If you're not observing it, you're kind of estimating it, and that's um, a different game. But it, it's important, but I'd rather have first-party. Yeah, I think, I think you start to go down a lot of... Uh false positives when you when you're in that in that environment and you're you know really speculating on data in terms of is this person buying you know going to buy or not all right okay sounds good this is this has been great now what we have is rapid questions i want to ask four questions and give me a quick answer as, as fast as you can and then we uh we wrap it up so let's let's start with yourself greg the first question I want to ask you is, what's, what is one resource that fundamentally changed the way you work um, or live? This could be personal, this could be professional, you know, this could be a book, blog, podcast, a conversation, a talk that you watch, TEDx, whatever it is. What comes to mind? There's this great podcast I listen to every Tuesday um, called Hidden Brain on NPR. It is a fascinating journey into the psychology of people and their behaviors. Um, Non-marketing related, but super interesting. Gotcha. Uh, John? I will give you a marketing-related one. I really enjoyed the book, Start With Why, by Simon Sinek. Our management team uh, in APEC within TechTarget read it, and it is a, a principle that I can come back to when we're making decisions. Does it support our why? Love it. All right. Question number two. If you could give only one advice to B2B marketers or salespeople, what would it be? Great. Put yourself in the customer's shoes. I think it's just so important. We forget that every day. We do super interesting things and we go down great paths and rabbit holes. But think like a customer. Probably the most important thing I could ask anyone to do. Yeah, we do it for ourselves. John, what about you? Uh, one of my colleagues came up with this phrase that I think is, is beautiful, which is persist through the silence. Just because someone doesn't want to talk to you doesn't mean they don't want to hear from you. And give... Uh, generously with the expectation of very little or nothing in return and people will appreciate that. I love that. That is good. That's good stuff. Number three, what are the, what are the influencers that you follow in marketing and sales space? Greg? I, I really like Scott Brinker from Chief Martech. So I follow Scott's work. I followed him from the very beginning of his work. 
Uh, we had him out here doing a tour before he was famous. Because uh, I think he thinks really nicely about how marketing technology is there to serve the need of the customer. Um, so I, I, I love Scott Brinker's work. I love the Stackies as well, which SAS was a top 10 winner this year, which is great. What was that? What was that? What was the second one? The Stackies. I love the Stacky Awards. So he has a, this great award program. You submit your marketing stack in an interesting graphical format. Uh, it gets judged by lots of people. It's a really cool kind of geeky MarTech kind of thing, but I like it. Yeah, we, we love our tools in the, in the marketing yeah. space. Uh, I love that. I'll, I'll check out. I actually haven't heard of Stacky. I'll, I'll check it out. John, what about you? Yeah, go and look at the Stackies. Um, so, you know, I like Simon Sinek and I like Seth Godin. I like them because I think they have this incredible ability, maybe genius, to take the complex and boil it down to something that is so simple and actionable. And I'm very envious of that skill. <laughs> That's true. It's a hard skill to have, right? I think Einstein said, you got to make everything as simple as possible, but not simpler. Um, it's a fine balance. But uh, okay, what about uh, last question I have, uh, Greg, what's something that excites you about B2B today? As B2B marketer, I think what's really exciting is just our ability now to really provide customers with what's important to them at the right time. It's, it's that it's not broad brush. You're not getting rubbish email. You're getting content that you're interested in. I think that's a super exciting kind of move forward for B2B marketing right now. Yeah, rather than generic. Um, John? I mean, I mean, we have come so far as an industry and we're in the midst of a data revolution. I am so excited to see how marketers are embracing data and having data at the core of everything that they do. And then I think also, especially in our part of the world, seeing more traditional sellers start to embrace data and build data into their activity into their outbound to personalize their messages. That's incredibly rewarding. And I think we are in the very early days of watching that come to fruition. And I'm really excited about what the next couple of years look like. That is definitely very exciting. So personalization, like uh, both of those kind of tie into the, the element of personalization. Um, so I, I love that. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you very much, Greg, John, both of you. I really appreciate your time. It was just plenty of golden nuggets in this chat, and it was a pleasure having you. Thanks, Shaheen. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Hey, it's Alex again from X-Growth. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It would really help get the word out to other B2B professionals. If you're hungry for more B2B content, make sure to join our Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack, where we share the latest B2B news tactics, tips, and chat about problems we're facing in the B2B space and find solutions together. That's growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you in the next episode.